It's late at night, and I'm scared of war. The president, over the next 24, maybe even now, 18 to 36 hours, is deciding the fate of perhaps the world. And I feel almost as if my life has come down to this moment, to whether I can summon the syllables that might have an effect on anything. I don't know. My whole life, I have been scared of war. I have been dedicating every mental fiber that I have, every pike and scimitar of syllables that I have in attempting to ward off the horseman that approaches to take us all down, perhaps. And I feel maybe it's just come down to this one speech. What I can do with what I have tonight. I know that this has ways of getting places that might be surprising to you, so I'm just going to tell you what I think. There's no planned speech. My family was slaughtered by war in the 20th century. On my father's side, many of the men were killed in the First World War in the most brutal and abhorrent and futile and useless fashions you can imagine. And on my mother's side as well, and then on my mother's side, in the Second World War, they uh, were drafted, they hid, they were suppressed by the Nazis. I have an uncle who flew on the bombing raid, the Royal Air Force bombing raid, that dropped the first, I think it was the first thousand pound, thousand plane raid on Dresden. Dresden had been largely spared because of our treasures and a civilian population. And then Churchill, I believe, gave an ultimatum to Hitler to say, surrender or Dresden goes, and Hitler did not respond. And lo, Dresden went, and it was that night. My uncle was on one side. He dropped the bombs that killed my grandmother on my mother's side, of course. My mother's mother. Now, I've heard some stories of the war from my mother. I have heard how she, as a young girl, had to coquettishly persuade a Russian tank commander to not shell the village where she and others were hiding. And she has also told me the story of how after the raid on Dresden, the Thousand Plane Raid, that created a firestorm that killed, uh, I'm sure an uncountable, an ungodly number of people, that she and her father left and her mother stayed for some reason I don't know. And when they came back, the house that she was in was completely destroyed. The block she was in was completely destroyed. And the only thing they ever found of my grandmother was the clasp that held her purse closed. That was it. That was all. A lifetime of memories and first kisses and favorite music and hated books loved subjects, feared endings, all 
vaporized, gone, vanished. I have thought many times, as half Irish and half German, how extraordinarily fortunate I was to have lived through a time where I was not drafted into some useless, God-forsaken war. That I have been spared the endless chomping jaws of history that the monster that irradiates European men, I just happened to, in a sense, accidentally stand between the toes, the bloody clawed toes of the dragon that takes out European men. I was lucky. I was very lucky. And I have occasionally thought that uh, if there was such a thing of fate, maybe I was spared for a reason. And maybe that reason is now, tonight. We, we can afford war no more. We can afford war no more. War was one thing when it was 20 men and clubs. War was another thing when it was a few hundred soldiers whacking at each other with swords in a field. War was one thing when it was a thousand archers raining death at Agincourt in fields far from the general population. War in the West is unaffordable. It is unconscionable. And it, 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 will, it will end not just us, but everything and everyone. And you say, oh, well, you know, but it's just Syria. Well, there are people in Syria, of course, who wish to live. There are people in Syria who wish to be free. Syria is one of the last secular democracies, for want of a better word, in the secular governments, I suppose, in the Middle East. The ruler is a Christian. just as Saddam Hussein's rule was secular, just as Gaddafi's rule was somewhat secular, certainly compared to places like Iran, Turkey. But it never stays there, you understand. It never stays. The war is uncontainable. We live We live in a world when, where war is no longer translatable into myth, you understand. This has not been since Vietnam has war been translatable into myth. So there was a, the charge of the Light Brigade, and it, it gets transformed into a, a stirring poem that gives young men some sort of idea or some sort of sense that war, the First World War that everyone signed up for, hoping it was not going to be over by Christmas so they would not taste the bloody adventure of their generation, that we had become so distant from war that we thought of it as glory. We thought of it as paintings come to life. We thought of it, as one guy said, in the First World War, he wrote very bitterly, and he said, he said, I thought war was going to be me riding up a hill on a white horse with a sword and that I have a fighting chance. That's not what war is. He said, war is some jerk 20 miles away pushing a button and blowing you into nothing into giblets for the rats to feast on. 
to the point where even the likelihood of people finding your body can be quite small. War was one thing back in the day. War was a brutal and expensive hobby for the murderous classes, but it was contained. A war in the Middle Ages could not end the world. It could not end a civilization. But now, war cannot be contained to myth, you understand. And we are a tribal species. It means if you go around blowing up people in Syria, that radiates throughout the Middle Eastern world, that radiates throughout the Muslim world, and the social media and the incredible sharing power of the internet means that bloody horrendous images are placed into the hearts and minds of people who view the Syrians as their own. The impact on Syria sends a thousand slivers into the hearts and minds of millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world. And they exist in a world where the carcasses of those they view as on their team flow back and forth across the internet. And most people in the West don't see it. They don't see what gets shared. They don't follow what gets shared. But war is not what it was. War is live. War cannot be filtered. War cannot be turned into a pastel painting of a guy on a horse riding up a hill with a sword in his hand. War can no longer be mythologized. War is the brutal, individualistic disassembling of human beings who have a right to survive. And in the past, there were songs. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. Pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. There was songs and faded landscape and men walking slowly and sadly and shuffling off into the fog of war as if they dissolved into mist, which they did, but brutally, a red mist, a blood spray through the air, sometimes never to land. Should it be windy, you are carried to the mountaintop. War is visceral. War is in your face. War is live. And because it cannot be mythologized, it motivates in a way that we can't even really understand. In the West, in America, because America is so often the aggressor, war is muted. And you may see the pictures of the men like yearbook photos. Not the picture of their wounds, not the pictures of their innards, not the pictures of eye stalks hanging down cheeks, not the pictures of cratered faces, not the pictures of split limbs, not the pictures of men staggering into a shallow grave holding their own goddamn intestines. You don't see that. You see it sanitized. You see it cleaned up. You see it airbrushed. You see men in their prime not when they had become meat. But that's not what the rest of the world sees, you understand. The rest of the world sees what it is. 
They see the women cradling the severed heads of their children. They see the children of Fallujah genetically destroyed through horrifying weapons. They see shattered, splayed bodies. They see a wedding party blown into horrifying stucco Picasso wall paintings of death. They see what it is as if you're there. And we see the sentimental view of what it looks like in sadness. And they see what it viscerally feels like in horror and rage. War cannot be contained within the minds of propagandists anymore. War is visceral. War is in your face forever. War is shareable like that. Having people who took movies and who people who took, fo- took photographs in Vietnam was one of the things that ended the resolve of the war. War has become increasingly brutal because in the in the Second World War, for instance, uh, only a minority of American soldiers ever even fired their weapons. A lot of people ran and hid. It is not in our nature. It is not in the nature of most human beings to stand in front of another human being to aim down a sight, to pull the trigger and to dissolve their memories into red mist. It is not in the nature of a human being to want to blow someone's head off and watch their arterial spurting, falling torso plummet into the mud and twitch. It is not in our nature. There is a small minority of people, for want of a better word, who love it who live for it, and a day where you don't get to slaughter someone, preferably with your bare hands, is a day that's barely worth getting out of bed for. But that is a very small minority of people. (laughs) And I've always been asked, what do we do with these people in a free society? I'm not exactly sure, but I've got a good place to start. How about we stop giving them armies? Is that a place? How about we stop giving them weapons of mass destruction, fiat currency to fund their bloodlust and fuel their human disassembly? lines. How about we just stop giving them planet-ending weaponry? It's just a thought. Just a possibility. It is not in human beings' nature to wish to slaughter each other. It is almost universally true. I have traveled very many places in the world. Just about everyone I meet is quite nice. I'm quite nice, but just about everyone I meet is quite nice and friendly and positive. Especially, I mean, you're a parent, you're having fun with your kids. People are nice. And in the past, it was hard. Like, when when the knights were trained, then they fought. The peasants didn't fight so much because they were just kind of conscripted or enlisted and drafted and they had to fight. And then in the Second World War, the majority of soldiers did not fire their weapons, did not engage in combat. And the army recognized this as a huge problem and began to do the savage kind of basic training that you see depicted in movies like Full Metal Jacket. That kind of savage training occurred because the army was falling apart. Because the level of brutality and the length of brutality and the youth of the soldiers, particularly in Vietnam, was unsustainable. So they knew they had to dehumanize people to the point where they were willing to kill. 
in higher numbers than occurred in World War II. Well, why was the post-World War II era, the baby boomer era, different from the post-Vietnam era? Because most of the soldiers who came home had not killed anyone. It's Lord of the Flies, right? The writer says, a spear is a stick sharpened at both ends. You put it in someone else, it goes through you. War cannot be contained. It breaks out of the frame. And if you've ever seen true violence up close, I remember um, being a little, little boy in England hearing a horrible, crunching, ripping, metallic sound running up to the street near the flats where I lived. And, and they, they, were, they were pulling a woman from a, a, car, a car wreck. The car had flipped. They were pulling a woman out, and, and she was shredded. And I was distant, and it's befogged by memory. But if you've ever seen true violence up close, it is visceral. You're, you, you understand your, your, bro, your body and your brain reacts like you're there. Like you're there. Our bodies haven't figured out screens yet. They haven't figured out that all stimuli is not immediate. That's why people like porn, I guess. They haven't figured out that it's just a screen. And when you see this visceral kind of damage, this tearing apart, this shredding, this aftermath, this panning across the flattened, bloody, half-human leftovers of the savage meal of metalry known as war. It's like you're there. It's like it's your family. People respond to it in a visceral way, and everyone knows that, which is why you in the West don't see the wounds, don't see the bodies, don't see the victims. But everyone else in the world, they do. And it hits them hard. And it makes them angry. And in our cud-like, chewing, cow-like, complacent way, we don't see what we are sowing, what we are sowing, what we are sowing every time, as they did a hundred thousand times during Obama's reign. The bombs fall primarily in the Middle East. Invade everyone. Invite everyone. Not only can war no longer be contained in mythology. War cannot be contained in borders, because the West, in its infinite programmed dissolute wisdom, has decided to open the floodgates. Western Europe, Canada, America, have decided to open the floodgates. We bomb. We attack, we dismantle, we destroy. And the images of this spread far and wide, inflaming the passions of those who see these images repeatedly. And then those people come wandering and snarling into our countries. You could not design the disassembly of a civilization with more robotic precision if you tried. We must stop. We must stop. The great fear that I had 
Yeah. I remember this. And, and it wasn't until a lot later that I realized just the lefty propaganda that it all was. But nonetheless, when films like The Day After came out, I was a, a teenager in my mid-teens, if I remember rightly. I was in high school. I was in high school. There was one that was the day after, and then there's one that went on, I think, for like seven years. And this was about what happens right after a nuclear strike. And yes, it was designed to neuter the West's assertiveness when it came to confronting the Soviets. And it was a bunch of lefty propaganda. But what did I know at the time? At the time, I remember sitting with a friend of mine's brother watching, I think it was the one about seven years. No, it was the day after. It was the day after. And I felt such a horrendous sense of... of violation and helplessness, of helplessness, like I was just a fish in a tank. And they could turn the water that surrounded me to fire anytime they wanted. I couldn't prevent it. I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't say anything about it. And any protest I might have the moment of would vanish in a nuclear wind. I would be a shadow on a wall, unidentified, unidentifiable, and who would even bother to try and identify me? I would be baked into a radioactive wasteland for a thousand years. Nothing of me would remain. Not my work, not my writing, my thoughts, my friendships, my loves, my hates, my passions. Nothing would remain. I could be microwaved into less than a ghost in less than a moment's notice. And that is a horrifying feeling of helplessness. And don't we all feel this right now? We, we do, right? We feel this. We feel this. Americans, you have to feel this. All of you who voted for what? No more war. No more war. The longest war in American history. Afghanistan, 17 years. For what? Can't even say for nothing. For nothing would be you go to a casino and you walk out wearing a barrel. This is for sowing the seeds of the destruction of the future and throwing a bladed boomerang that decapitates your children. But you voted for Trump, for a wall for the prosecution of Hillary and company and for no more useless wars. And what war recently has not been useless? Do you feel helpless, right? This is the feeling. You know, that, 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 that you eat well and, 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 and you exercise you take care of yourself and you try to get good sleep and you floss for what? So that some jerk 2,000 miles away can push a button and all of your hard work and all of your care and all of your self-improvement becomes something, becomes a shadow 
that someone with a wire brush scrubs off a crumbling wall a thousand years from now, not having any idea whether it was you or a palm tree whose residue they're cleaning. We don't even have the dignity of the people from Pompeii, the ancient city that was buried in volcanic ash where they found people masturbating and having sex and eating food and shopping and they found at least the outlines and the people and they could tell what they were doing. We won't even have that. And those who weigh 300 pounds will last one millionth of a second longer than those who weigh 150 pounds. And then we're turned into soap and dust and nothingness. And we we can't do anything about it. What can we do? We can't boycott. Our taxes are taken from us against their will. And, 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 and if we don't pay taxes to just print the money or borrow money, to create the money out of thin air, they're like, Aragorn, go get a ghost army. They could just go get ghost money to pay for their real army. Creating the backlash. Invade everybody, invite everybody. And I hate this helplessness. I make sure my daughter brushes her teeth and stays safe and learns geography. And and for what? For what? And for what? It has to stop. You know, I, I don't even know how to appeal to the leaders if this may... Like, I don't even know what to say because whether quickly or slowly, what we have, if we keep waging these wars, is going to end. And I'm not going to actually blame the people who come into our country seeking to end our way of life because our way of life is directly threatening them. You know, we... Western Europeans and, and, and North Americans, we're the ones with the nuclear weapons and the, the trigger-happy leaders and the massive resources to wage war seemingly ad infinitum. The death count that, that, that raises almost to the sky. So the fact that other cultures fear and hate us, well, of course they do. Wouldn't you? Don't you? This has to stop. This has to stop. And I say this to you. President Donald J. Trump. I hate the fact that it comes down to one man. But you are the commander-in-chief. I hate the fact that it comes down to one man. Such a burden should never rest on any one person's shoulders or any thousand people's shoulders for that matter. But right now, given the way things are, it comes down to one man. And that man is you. And you and you alone 
have the power to say yes to the war or no to the war. Now, if you've got to feed a few bits of hot shrapnel for the murder fetishists of the generals around you, sure, go pound some sand, go throw up a couple of plumes of camel shit and sand dust, I don't care. Hit an empty building, say, oh, look, we did something. It's not great, but it worked last year. Why not again this year? Because if, like, it's, it's, this war is terrible enough and the people in Syria who are going to suffer is terrible enough and the migrant wave is terrible enough and the dissolution of the West is terrible enough. But what does matter is that the people who voted for you handed you the kind of trust and sacrifice that has not been seen in the modern world. They were warriors and soldiers for you, and they burnt friendships, and they burnt marriages, and they burnt jobs, and they burnt prospects, and they burnt careers, and they burnt credibility, and they have suffered to give you the power to stop these wars. And I'm sure they don't mind the tax cuts, but that's not what it's about. And the tax cut combined with a $1.3 trillion omnibus spending bill that you signed is just a little bit less than compelling. Don't give me a raise and triple the raise in liabilities. I can count. So forget all of that. They wanted you to control immigration. Okay. That's a bit of a longer term plan. But right now, right now, literally this moment in history, it comes down to you. It comes down to you saying thumbs up or thumbs down. Like the Romans in the ancient times, but Western civilization is in the amphitheater, in the Colosseum with the lion. It's up to you. And if you fail, if you say yes, if you thumbs up the end of everything, which it will be, quickly or slowly, and who knows which is better, then what happens is everyone deserts you who's got any decency. I'm, I'm just, don't shoot the messenger. It's just the way that it is. There are a lot of people you lured out of the woodwork, a lot of people who said war cannot be stopped. The media is too powerful. Academia is too powerful. Hollywood is too powerful. The deep state is too powerful. The military-industrial complex is too powerful If voting changed anything, they would have made it illegal a long time ago. It's a symbol that further ties you into obedience to the powers that be. Well, you voted, so now you got to obey. Or if your vote means nothing, why bother voting? Then at least you're not part of the problem because you're not sanctifying something that seeks to destroy you. And those people that you lured out of the woodwork, that you lured back into political action, well, those people... If you fail them now, and what they want is no more war, if you fail them now, they will not come back. They will not come back. Not peacefully, anyway, in the long run. It's what I believe uh, in, in Europe as well. The reason why it's important for European leaders to start controlling their borders is either you do it or the population's going to do it by making those countries less hospitable for 
migrants to come to. In one way or another, it's going to happen. Be much better to happen peacefully. So those people aren't coming back if you betray them and launch another war. They will know then that if you can't do it, it can't be done. And then they prepare for the end. I'm telling you, they do. And they sure as hell will not come out to vote Republican in November 2018. They will not come out to vote Republican in November 2018. Because there's nothing to vote for. There's no one to vote for. And it becomes an act an aspect of humiliation is people have an abuse relationship with their government. The government has been abusing and pillaging and lying and exploiting and programming and propagandizing them for 150 years. Everyone's lifetime has lived under the shadow of control, of threatened brutality. And the slaves horizontally attack when the slaves vertically don't. It's a symbiotic relationship. And those people gave you not just a vote, but their last hope. You understand? Not just a vote. They gave you their last hope. And if you fail them, they will not come back out. Now, the left, the Democrats, they're energized. They're pumped. They're ready. That They can't stand you being in office, and they will do almost anything to rid you of the anxiety that they project onto you and the depression and the horror that they project onto you. They'll vote you out just so that they can reclaim they agreed so that they can reclaim what they think of as their sanity. So they're energized and they're coming. And if your base is betrayed, as they already relatively feel, no prosecution of bad people, only, it seems, endless witch hunts against good people. No wall. No control over immigration. No DACA repeal. But until now, No, new war. Now, isn't this the saddest thing that you can imagine? Isn't this the saddest thing that you can imagine? That the best that voters in the West can hope for is no new war. No new war. Seven lashes a day. Okay. Please, can I not have eight? That's where people are at. And... If you betray them on this, they will not come out to vote for you. And they will not come out to vote for the Republicans. You were their weapon against the traditional betrayals of the Republican Party who are the most corrupt in history because they know the good and portray the good while delivering the evil consistently and constantly. At least the left doesn't pretend. They say what they want. Control, subjugation, and end to the First and Second Amendment, and end to the Fourth Amendment for sure. So... The Democrats will come out to vote for the Democrats, but your base will not come out to vote for you in the midterms. And then the day after, impeachment proceedings will begin, and they will either succeed or fail, but it doesn't really matter. Because you will go down as the most shameful president in U.S. history, because you were given the greatest mandate and promised the most changed and delivered the most status quo that can be imagined. Because of what was promised. If you go to war in Syria, you are openly broadcasting that you don't want a second term, and you would really love to spend the last two years of your first term fighting impeachment proceedings and getting virtually nothing done. 
and nobody will come to work for you. I mean, that's part of the point, right? Part of the point of raiding your personal lawyer's offices is to make sure that nobody wants to represent you legally. Because if their offices get raided, then all their other clients' secrets may end up in the hands of the FBI. Attorney-client privilege means nothing, so lawyers aren't going to want to represent you. So they stripped people who might want to work from you by constantly harassing and attacking them for this imagined Russia collusion, and so good, decent people are getting destroyed. The fact that you didn't stand up for Flynn, as you should have, is now why you're being targeted. The time to stop a fire is when it is small, not huge. So, if you fail, your presidency fails, and people will batten down their hatches, buy their gear, move out of the cities, and prepare for the inevitable. And I really, really hate that there's a system that it comes down to one man, one day, one decision. And I hate... I hate perhaps even more that I have to beg that I have to beg, that I have to beg for my life, for the life of those I love. You'll be fine, you'll be safe. Churchill would have been airlifted out to the States. The Battle of Britain had been lost. You and uh, the elites... You'll be fine. Like a bad woman always lands on her back, you guys will find a way to survive. You'll flee. You'll hide. You'll retreat to your walls, your gated communities. You won't have any trouble building a wall around your communities because you would not build a wall around your countries. And I hate that I have to beg. And I hate that I have to beg one man from a distance for what is what is so necessary. This time the elites will not escape. This time the elites will not survive. Historically, that has generally been the case. I don't think it will be the case now. So I am going to beg. Also on behalf of the people who don't have my reach, my audience, my eloquence, I am going to beg for them as well. They deserve their freedoms. They deserve what their ancestors fought and died to hand to them. They deserve peace. They deserve peace. There is no need to fight in the Middle East. If Israel wants its wars, Israel should fight its wars. This is not complicated. If Saudi Arabia wants its wars, Saudi Arabia must fight its wars. It's not complicated. The Middle East is not a laboratory for you horrifying people to test your latest weaponry on. These are human beings. And I beg for them too. I beg for my child. I beg for my child. I beg for their children. I beg even for your grandchildren. 
Don't do this. Don't do this. You stand with your sword grazing the bottom of a giant cloud. And inside the cloud is blood and bones and death. Do not cut the cloud. Do not open us up to this. Do not end it all. If you cut after us, comes the deluge.